Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Bronwyn LeGrice, founder, CEO, and managing director of And Health, a national digital health initiative established by commercial and government partners to facilitate and support the development of commercialization of clinically validated digital health technologies across Australia. Bronwyn has years and years and years of executive experience in the life sciences sector, spanning corporate and business development, transaction management, investor relations, and industry advocacy. Hey, Bronwyn, how are you going? Good, thanks, Peter. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Thanks for joining. Even though you're, we're not face-to-face and we're at different times, we, we tried for most of this year to, to schedule a time to catch up and have a chat on the show. And through all of the external things that have been happening around the world, we've been finally able to catch up. So thanks for making the time. No problem. It's a, a shame that we couldn't get to Sydney to do this, but I don't think that interstate travel bubble is going to open anytime soon. No, it's, it's best to do it remotely for now. Really looking forward to getting stuck into it, though. Let's get started about And Health. Give us the spiel. What What is And Health? Who's it for? And what problem does it solve? Sure. So And Health was incorporated because it became evident to me in raising money for some digital health companies in my venture capital career that the pathway to commercial success and to increasing valuation in digital health was quite distinctly different from that you would pursue for a more traditional medical device. If we look globally, we were seeing a lot of emerging policy reform, regulation and growth in the digital medicine and digital therapeutic sectors. But back in those days in 2015, we were still very much focused on connectivity and infrastructure like the My Health Record here in Australia. So we wanted to set up a group of people who had proven expertise in commercialising digital health at a global scale and bring them around some of the really promising digital health growth companies that we knew were in existence. And I guess since then, we've done that. We ran our pilot uh, and Health Plus program for two years and have delivered some pretty cool outcomes, including over 188 new jobs across nine nine companies. And those nine companies have served 90,000 patients or more than 90,000 patients. But I think we've also now worked across a number of states to build out state-based programs. So we now have programs that go from the early stage to the late stage. But our reason for existing is still scaling and making mid-stage companies investment and enterprise customer ready. Yeah, got it. Okay. Is, is there many other groups that do anything similar to what you're doing or are you quite bespoke? So we're extremely bespoke. So unlike most accelerators, I, I sometimes call us the non-accelerator accelerator. There's no curriculum in the Anne Health Plus program. We work from a venture capital perspective almost. So we work backwards. We look at the gaps within the company's investment proposition and we work with them to find independent, validated data to support their case and fill those gaps. So there's no one else doing it. There's no one else specialising in digital health. We don't do traditional med tech. We do do connected devices. But unless the software is an active part of delivering the clinical outcome, it's not our bag, I guess. We are very specialised. And I think that if we look overseas, that's pretty standard overseas. You don't see digital health companies put through med tech programs. And I also think you see an emerging sector. It has a lot of overlay with a lot of existing sectors, including multinational med tech and also big pharmaceutical companies companies, but we work with their connected health or digital health teams in those corporates rather than maybe their traditional scouts in the biotech space. So it is definitely a bespoke program as far as I'm aware, and this includes feedback from some of the American companies that we're talking to. Our model is unique. We are non-profit and non-equity taking. So it's an innovative model to deliver commercialization outcomes. And one 
of the things we wanted to do when we set it up was to take what we saw as the weaknesses of kind of offshore accelerator models and, and really create something that was fit for purpose for the Australian environment, both taking into account the way our equity capital markets work, but also the specialised capabilities our companies need and the deep understanding of how to go global from Australia. Okay. That sounds pretty cool. What's your background then? Why did How did this all come about? What did you do before this? So I started, I actually have a Bachelor of Commerce and I actually started working with a startup clothing firm in Perth when I was at university and went into a tech uh, company during the dot-com era and went through the boom and bust of dot-com, which probably dates me somewhat for some of that audience on this podcast. Years and so, years ago. <laughs> yes, 20 years ago, one might say. <laughs> uh, I moved to, when I moved to Melbourne, I got a job with Neurosciences Victoria and that was my intro into the life sciences sector. And I think it's safe to say I've never really found the exit. So I started working with them in a marketing and business and then evolved into a business development role and found it really fascinating to bring a more market-driven approach to the commercialization of science. Very unusual that I don't have a science or engineering background, but I've always found it quite advantageous because I can almost emotionally distance myself from the technology because I get really excited about the market penetration and how you would build a market for a product. And so it's an interesting, it's a different approach to what we normally and traditionally have seen in commercialization in Australia. So I worked for NSV and a number of other firms. I went to New Zealand just for a bit of a change. It's hilly and green and there's lots of water and I grew up in Melbourne and Perth in the coastal plains, so not hilly and not always green. No. <laughs> uh, went to New Zealand and actually ended up landing the job of CEO of NZ Bio. And that was a really transformative experience, not least because it was a very frontline. I was very young. I was 28, very frontline exposed kind of role. I wasn't a scientist. I was representing some amazing scientists and globally recognized scientists and scientific organizations. But also because in New Zealand, the majority of the biotech sector was actually not health. Mm. It was ag biotech, food biotech, industrial biotech. And so really was quite shaping in that the pieces of science and market opportunities that I saw that excited me were where there was convergence between those areas. So a food health biotech where you're seeing functional foods that have clear clinical outcomes. Hmm. Um, and there's been some good examples, gold, kiwi fruit and um, A2 milk. Yeah, okay. um, so there's some really interesting areas. And I, when I left into bio, because three years in an industry association is enough for anybody, <laughs> I actually came back to work for Bioscience Managers, so one of uh, Australia's kind of leading health technology VCs. And I've been a uh, long counselor, Jeremy Kenner Cook, the founder of that firm, as a mentor, and I uh, came back to work for him. I think what was unusual about my role in the VC firm is, one, not being a scientist, but also worked as an investment director in the buy side investment decisions alongside the team, but also got placed then into companies to prepare them for large transactions. So I did the buy side, but I also just step into the company side and do the sell side when we were raising capital. So it was a really diverse experience. And after I did the Adherium IPO, I'd spent a lot of time for buy sites managers commuting back to New Zealand from Melbourne and got a little bit tired of the every second week commute to Auckland. So I decided to take a step out and was happily renovating my house when James drove me at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and I had the idea for Antel. And so initially I thought this was just a little six month project, but we're uh, three and a half years in. <laughs> <Still> <laughs> <going>. <laughs> that's pretty cool. And so the companies that work with AntHealth or, or I guess are, are members of AntHealth, if that's the right term, you, you talked about the, the focus around the software. What stage are these companies and, and why would they join and what benefits do they get out of it? 
So let's talk about two different sets of companies. One is our corporate members, and they are financial and in-kind supporters of our operation. We have a membership model where we have a best-in-class corporate member from specific verticals, pharma, product development, software UX, so on and so forth. Um, And they basically participate. By working with our members, we create a multidisciplinary selection and screening capability. So it's a really fascinating experience to sit in that room. There'll be 14 senior execs from across those members and we'll sit there as we're looking at potential companies to work with. My background, I might say, I just don't get it. Company X, I don't get this. I don't I don't understand the market pool. But there might be somebody from our pharma company partner, Novartis, or our hospital benchmarking partner, potentially X, and they might be going, wow, this is a major pain point. This is cool. Hmm. But I don't know it from my background. So by bringing those members from all those different sectors around, Hmm. we get a quite fascinating multi-sectoral screening process. And it's driven by a huge amount of collegiality and trust amongst those people. And it's a very free-flowing conversation, but it enables us to interrogate those decisions from a multitude of potential markets, customers and users and investors. And that gives us a really sound decision-making piece on who comes into our flagship program. And I'll I'll talk about the the main and health plus that we're best known for internationally. Yep. In terms of the companies that are accepted into that program, it was always intended to be a, a program for mid-stage companies that needed a little bit of help to meet the expectations of investors and or enterprise customers internationally. And so these are companies that generally have a product and maybe some early customer traction. The reason that it was designed to hit that particular stage of development is because the evidence building piece for digital health companies is still evolving. So if, if you had a straight medical device and you develop it, you could do your feasibility study, get positive data, clinical data, and you'll get an evaluation uplift, and then you get your pivotal trial data, you'll get evaluation uplift. In digital health, the clinical data may not relate to evaluation uplifts, but also it's really clear that in that evidence building stage, it's not sufficient. If we look at the case studies of all the international companies that we look at, It's not sufficient to just have clinical data, you have to have commercial data. And by commercial data, I mean healthcare utilisation studies, health economics data, how it fits into a purchasing paradigm, what the returns are for customers for deploying your technology. So a very kind of long and and somewhat complex piece around the evidence building. So we really wanted to bring global capability around that. But also that's the piece where if you can map that plan out well, then that's when you can start to de-risk the asset from the perspective of a customer or investor. The other thing I guess to notice is that, and a lot of the accelerators over the past 18 months have started to come out and say this, is that having done global agreements with global pharmaceutical companies throughout my career and, and being involved in the agreement that adhering with AstraZeneca, it's really clear that big pharma and big corporates really struggle to engage with very small startups. And the reason for that is no big corporate or big customer or hospital system wants to go into a pilot with a company if they're not confident that that company will still exist at the end of the pilot. And so there is a level of rigor and robustness in the businesses that corporates and providers and payers want to engage with. And you really need to be working with those companies to facilitate that engagement if that's where you want to play. I think the concept of big corporates working with startups is really good if it's an easily absorbable technology but specifically in healthcare where there's significant regulatory requirements, you have to be at a certain level of maturity before you can expect to to have those pilots with pharmaceutical companies or or global medtech. So we really wanted to bring that capability around that part. The other piece of this, it was really clear to me that there were some systemic barriers in the commercialisation pathway for our promising digital health companies at that stage. So there's a long-standing theory that has been predominant in our innovation policy in the past five years 
of if we can create more startups, we'll end up with more scale-ups. This whole idea that investors need more deal flow, I think investors want more deal flow, but they want more high-quality deal flow. So more low-quality deal flow doesn't help anyone. So what I wanted to do is if, if we couldn't fix the systemic issues preventing these later stage really promising companies from going global, then simply putting more early stage companies in the top of that funnel wouldn't necessarily create more successes. It would just create more early stage stuff competing for very small amounts of capital and struggling to reach scale. So really looking at let's fix the systemic issues in the mid-stage commercialization pipeline for this sector. And that's why we started with that program backfilled the early stage program. So and then worry about how good the quality is coming through. Because if we've got really good companies that aren't getting there, why? It's a different approach to kind of what's been taken and it's all heavily informed by the fact that I used to be the person sitting there looking at the pictures probably from the company yeah. going, I just wish you had more clinical data or I just wish you had a health economic study or I yeah. really wish you'd spoken to the people who are going to pay for this, not the people who are going to use it. And, yes. and just really trying to bring that into the companies before they get to people like me. Yeah, cool. And, <laughs> and so those companies that, that's perfect. And, and I mean, that, that's speaking to such a big problem for so many companies at that mid-stage or even at the earlier stage, thinking about how they will get to that mid to, to later stage as well. So understanding yeah. that there's a there's a pathway there. The other thing that really differentiates us, we don't take any equity. So we are an industry development program at our core. We want to build this sector. So it's a probably the most non-commercial model ever established by a former venture capitalist. <laughs> but I but I think the point too is that one of the reasons I didn't want to take equity was because I wanted to be able to give the companies honest advice. Mm. And so we have given advice to some companies that we didn't see that their offering as a standalone offering was an investable proposition. And here's some other strategies you might pursue, whether it's partnering or acquisition or whatever it is. And I can make those recommendations to those boards, but I don't have any exposure to the asset. So to make that recommendation, I don't have to go to my own board and say, we need to write down the value of company one yes. because we don't think they're investable, I can just say to the board, look, we've got no skin in this game. This is out of all the expert work, we've done three hundred fifty dollars to $400,000 of services over nine months of tailored panel advisory work and coaching. This is where we got to. You can do with it what you will. And so that's given us the freedom to divorce our own interests from the advice we give the company. So again, we want to build trust with the investors about the quality of our cohort company, I have no vested interest in spreaking those companies to investors because I don't gain. I make an on-paper valuation increase. I don't get anything. My number one objective is to make those companies investable in their own right, but it is up to them to then close that deal. And it's up to us to have the investors trust that we're not going to come into their offices going, you should invest in these guys, you should invest in these guys, because we're going to gain money from it when we're really like, these guys are great it's because we've spent time with them. So it's a very different model to what we see usually in the accelerators. I think that level of integrity or the way you operate over time and, and, and I'm sure the relationships that you would have built over the years with those investment groups that would probably be involved in those conversations with those companies means that it's almost like a level of verification you're providing to these companies that if Antel's involved, then they've gone through a level of due diligence and thought about some standard things. So that's pretty interesting. Speaking of due diligence, one thing that would have taken a heck of a lot of time to do would have been this report that you guys released <laughs> recently. <laughs> the report that Ant Health released about the Australian digital health landscape, it's a comprehensive report. Report. Tell us about that. 
So as a predominantly a services business, our asset is in our knowledge. So very early on in the piece, much of the frustration of the team, I started stamping my foot and saying, we must have a CRM. We must know these companies inside out. We must have a record. We must be able to track their progress so that when they come back to us for office hours, we know what they're doing and what they were doing and where they're at. But also really conscious that I've never seen a decent report on the digital health growth company landscape in Australia. And I've seen people say there's 30 companies. I'm like, well, we see 30 companies companies months, so it's certainly more than that. And then other companies, but it's very much the, the health software providers and because they've got the much more mature, much more organised, much more well-defined than a lot of these companies who don't really necessarily feel like they fit in any particular bucket particularly well. So I guess there's a few things to note about the report. One, it's not, there is some survey data in the later pieces around sentiment, but the actual data on the pipeline itself is an aggregated, anonymised view of the 317 companies that we worked with between July 2017 and early June 2020. So we have personally engaged with all of those companies. So it's a human curated slash quite deeply thought about data gathering exercise. It's part of what we do as business as usual in supporting companies. We are not funded to, but we do provide office hours across the country for companies that want to come to us and seek advice on what they should do next. So part of that context is that we keep a record of them so we know what we're doing, basically. Mm. Um, And we've anonymised and aggregated it. But really partly also with the impact of COVID, I've been saying for three years, we keep talking about digital health like it's the equivalent of an electronic medical record or a health software system, and it's not. So let's talk about digital medicine, digital therapeutics. That's where the interest is offshore. It was a perfect time to create a report that illustrated all of these companies that currently don't necessarily fit into grant programs, that don't fit into anyone's definition of medical research necessarily. They're out there doing stuff that in a post-COVID environment will utterly be key to how we transform our healthcare system, both from an affordability perspective and an access to care perspective and also from a clinical outcomes perspective. So these 317 companies, so we wanted to illustrate the diversity and the growth potential and and the variety of paying customers. There's always that pushback on us is always your company's the only payer is government. So if government don't like it, there's no customer. And that's just simply not true. The the healthcare market globally is incredibly multi-layered. You would know this. There's various payers. The payers are different in jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There's different levers you can pull to get different payers to engage in a paying customer sense. So the report itself was quite cool. It was also a really good moment for the Ant Health team to say, wow, we actually have this knowledge that no one else has. But, you know, fascinating, we're seeing a significant spread of companies across the country, which is always good. Diversity of the clinical indications that companies are focusing on from some things that you'd expect, so 17% in mental health and 25% in diabetes and, and lifestyle conditions. But then beyond that, everything from CNS to musculoskeletal to cardiac and the circulatory tech, GI, infectious diseases, you name it, it's on this list. There are companies doing stuff in that space. But also the diversity of the types of technologies that they're using. So data analytics and systems is part of it. But there's also connected devices, sensors, patient-reported data collection and assessment, virtual reality technologies, platform as a service, mobile health technologies. You know, it's a really diverse space. And going back to how we define digital health, it really shows that these companies work across the, the breadth of the definition as laid out by the FDA, which is the definition of digital health that we refer to. Mm. We don't, I'm not into writing definitions. I leave that for other people 
who are smarter and who have more time. But we work to the FDA definition. The US is still a key market for us. It's a universally accepted definition outside of Australia. So broad use of technologies, but then we look at who their end users will be and it's practitioners, patients, but administrators, researchers and lab workers, clinical trial workers, uh, caregivers, employees. There's a you know trend towards corporate wellness, which has always had much bigger market in the US than it has here, but we are starting to see employers get involved in products which improve productivity. I think with COVID and everyone working from home, again, that's another area of growth, yeah. but also aged care and paediatrics. And a lot of technologies, 40% of these almost being used in the home versus in the clinic. So it shows that shifting of care from the clinic to the home. So, you know, when we start to look at what these companies are doing, we really start to understand the potential of the sector. And I'm really proud of the team for pulling it together and then hundreds, if not thousands of hours of, of work with companies that's gone into the data. But I also think it's an incredibly powerful tool for our policymakers in this environment and also other people in the kind of more traditional parts of the sector that might say digital health just like medtech. We also did a sentiment survey on companies in December. So yeah. clearly by the time okay. we had to publish this, then that was yeah. not as relevant. Yeah. So what in the second half of the report, we've actually included two sentiment surveys. So this is survey data. This is much smaller numbers because it's an opt-in, relatively yeah. rigorous survey. But we did a survey on both how companies felt before COVID, but then also after COVID. So the, mm. the follow-up survey we did in late May. And so we can see that a number of our companies have pivoted their businesses. So over 30% of companies pivoted their business in response to COVID. 25% sought to raise capital. 24% or roughly 25% paused their clinical trials. Yeah. Another 17% paused their commercial trials. So it did have an impact on that kind of evidence gathering piece. But, you know, over 20% of these companies were hiring about the same number were firing. So it's really interesting to see how the industries come through it. So in terms of sentiment, probably one of the standout numbers was over 70% of companies said that COVID had made it much more difficult to access their customers. And that's because everyone's busy doing other things, quite rightly, but also their ability to secure government funding and capital raising. Now, access to capital has pre and post COVID always been the, the number one challenge identified by companies. It was the challenge that I saw, which drove me to set up And Health, was how do we bridge this capital divide, both in education sense, but also capital scale and access to grants, ability to access grants. So access to funding is still remains the largest challenge, and it was the largest challenge before, I guess. Without any data necessarily, I would also say that in an environment where downturn environments, it's been a significant increase in, in investment in digital health in the US, but they had funds that were looking at digital health. We don't actually have any dedicated, specifically skilled funds in digital health here. We have our healthcare funds and our general tech funds and all of them do a little bit. Yes. But we don't have any pots of money directed at this sector that can be deployed. And we are competing across drug development, medical devices and general SaaS businesses and tech businesses, including FinTech, RegTech, ad tech, ed tech for funds. And so it's a highly competitive capital environment for these guys. And I, I can't see that changing simply with some of the challenges that have hit through COVID at policy level. So foreign investment review board reviews for everything over 0% foreign investment. So if you're an Australian company who was talking to US VCs, you are looking at a FERB process unless you set up a US vehicle and do some kind of transfer of capital. And I'm not sure how that works at a regulatory level, bluntly, but also investors don't don't like having to go through hoops like they'll all kill me but investors are largely simple creatures you know the easiest sure. most straightforward path of deal is usually the easiest one to get across the line yeah but also because of the withdrawals from super our super funds don't have liquid um capital preferences 
so we don't have any liquidity requirements inside our super funds. That will probably result in a challenging environment for VCs seeking to raise new funds in kind of one to two years' time mm-hmm. because they will have to rebalance their portfolios. So we're yet to see all of that kind of stuff wash out. And again, that's kind of coming back to the base premise of simply because network-based systems like accelerators work in other jurisdictions doesn't mean they'll work in Australia because our equity capital market is quite distinctly different. And so when we look at something like a Y Combinator or a Silicon Valley model or even some of the kind of Central American models like Dream Adventures, they operate within a different equity capital market environment. And simply lifting up models from offshore and dumping them here, really, when you're looking at interfacing with investors, we're really not good at thinking deeply about the differences in our equity capital markets. There's a lot to unpack there. So that's really interesting. And it's some challenges there that it's brave of you to take it on and try and unpack it for the for the industry here in Australia. So that's very helpful. I don't know about brave. <laughs> Find another word. Brave and <laughs> Yeah, they've all been used at various points in time. Look, putting the hat on of a, a mid-stage or even earlier stage health tech or digital sure. health company that's that's checking out the show and, and working the traps in Australia, particularly in a post-COVID environment, what advice would would you give to some of those digital health companies that are at that stage of their journey or even earlier? How do they take their vision and, and make it a reality in this rapidly evolving and complex area of digital health? We have a relatively blunt approach to this kind of stuff. That would be surprising to no one that's ever met me that's listening <laughs> to this podcast. So there's a number of things. Is The first thing will be, and I would say this to any company in any industry that's trying to get a new product away or is starting out, which is do equivalent level of due diligence on advisors and programs you engage with, external advisors, external programs, accelerators, whatever, do exactly the same amount of due diligence on those as you would do on a co-founder or a key pivotal staff member. So one of the things I do think we've got lots of people in the innovation space who are all highly skilled in certain ways, but often I don't find that companies really think about whether those people are the right people for them. So I encourage everyone to do significant amounts of due diligence on the programs, including ours. It might not be for you, right? I think if you are specialising in digital health, you need to look at offshore. And I I personally think you should look at programs, not just ours, but those available internationally that are designed for digital health companies. I think you need to be open to really direct feedback. The mentors you want around you are the people that will tell you what you don't want to hear. Because if it's just somebody saying, you're amazing, I can't believe you're doing this, you're amazing, you're not actually getting any constructive feedback on the things you might be doing that might be not even wrong, but just not right now. You know, you're spending stuff you don't need right now because you don't have the other three pieces you should have before you do that. Find people that have actually done it before versus people who talk about it. In terms of our programs, look at the programs and look at where you fit and consider just getting along and learning it. Be prepared to completely pivot your business. Be prepared to shut it down if there's no paying customer. So we've got a number of case studies internationally of companies that have actually just said the cost of providing our service exceeds what our paying customers can pay us for it. Mm. You have to be aware that that is potentially going to happen. On that note, though, don't just talk to the people who are going to use your product. You need to know who is going to pay for it. And it's probably not the people who are using it. Probably not the doctor themselves. Might be their practice, might be their hospital, but probably not the individual clinician. And probably, in fact, almost certainly not the customer, the consumer the end user, the patient. Really knowing where your market lies is really important. And then 
going on to that, having a really honest approach of how big your market really is and working out if you think it's a massive market and nobody's doing anything in that space, work out why not. So we see a lot of companies looking to exploit gaps in markets where if you do a bit of due diligence, it became clear that the big guys tried to do it and there was no market or the cost of doing trials in that particular cohort so far exceeded the potential return. So thinking about high risk cohorts of, you know, ill children or neonates or whatever it is or very elderly, brittle patients. There will, there will sometimes be reasons why the market has not yet been addressed by big players. Yeah. If you don't know the answer to that, you'll be asked that by an investor or a good investor. So you should, you really just need to know those answers. And the only other thing I would say to startups is don't pretend you have stuff you don't have. If you don't have that data yet, just say, we don't have our own data. Here is three peer-reviewed publications of similar technologies or approaches that validate that if we can deliver this behavior change, we'll see these clinical outcomes. And here's our plan for getting our own data. But don't try and fudge it. Just be honest and people will help you. And remember that no investor invests in a perfect company because they don't exist. Investors from putting an investor hat on always know that there are things that need doing or things that need backfilling that should have been done. It's making sure they know that they know what they are and what the plan would be to address them. So Mm. you don't have to be perfect, but you have to be honest. Yeah, no, there's some good advice there. And then so for for AndHealth, what's on the horizon for for you guys over the next 6 to 12 to 24 months? Sure. The biggest thing on my plate at the moment is our AndHealth Plus program, which has attracted worldwide attention and huge amounts of interest from potential commercial partners, remains unfunded by government. So that mid-stage program that's created the 188 jobs and raised 30 million of capital across nine companies, served almost 100,000 patients, that program is unfunded. So my single solitary focus is finding a government partner that is willing to come in and engage on building out this sector alongside us, bringing a significant three-to-one industry contribution alongside the the government contribution. So that's taking up all my time and and we're really hoping that we will get, with COVID and the, the focus on the importance of these types of companies and on sovereign capability in these types of areas, that we will see some government support for that flagship program. Uh, We recently announced we're part of the READY program, MRFF READY program being managed by MTP Connect and we're providing our masterclass and bright so our slightly earlier stage programs across the country underneath that program so we'll be going forth to do that for the next four years we've got a couple of new programs being announced smaller programs um, and we continue to work with our amazing partners in new south wales and wa and also talking to a number of states around state-based programs but again our big focus is the plus program we believe it is an innovative model that is delivering standout commercialization outcomes in a country where we frequently say we're great at development and crap at commercialization so we believe it's a, a great platform for government to engage in an area with significant unmet need. And then beyond that, I think Grace and I at some point would like a holiday. I've had two babies since I started End Health and uh, have never yet managed to take a full load of mat leave. <laughs> the team is amazing. At the moment, a big focus for me is supporting my team through stage four restrictions and making sure that they stay healthy and happy and feel supported. We have some new outcomes data, which I, I've kind of referred to today that we're announcing this week and I guess the most exciting part of that is the fact that over the past six months while COVID has been largely decimating industries we've seen our nine companies grow their revenue by 54% and we've seen them grow their staff by 33% and we've seen them grow their number of sites on which they're operational by 46% and increase the number of patients they've served by 70%. 
So this just shows that as a post-COVID economic recovery growth industry or economic growth engine and also healthcare resilience engine that this is an extraordinary sector in terms of potential. So we just want to keep working with people to make sure that everyone understands the potential that these companies are supported and they have the best chance possible of becoming global powerhouses while still headquartered here in Aussie. Totally. A lot of those initiatives make me quite excited. I know it speaks to a lot of unmet need or, or need that needs more support for organizations that are playing in this space. And then lastly, for those companies that, that might be interested in in working with Ant Health in the future, what should their next steps be? Well, so tomorrow, <laughs> we're <laughs> yeah. running our winter summer and we've got some six of probably the best digital health thought leaders and industry leaders I know from around the world um, speaking over the two days. Um, in fact, the last time I saw all of those people in one place, I was at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. So this is a much cheaper alternative to... Uh, spending 15 grand to go there if it ever runs again. We run a lot of events from everything quite specialised events around specific issues like data privacy or governance or security or regulation or reimbursement to our summits which are very much about the potential of the industry. Uh, We run programs almost every month of the year. They're all virtual at the moment so even if it's a Queensland program um, although preference is given to a home state because there's lots of programs always a program running for you to get engaged with. You know all of our speakers I think the important thing about what we do is that we don't consider ourselves the experts we just bring experts to the table for everyone to to benefit from so look out for those and um, look out for and health plus and I guess the other thing is we do provide office hours coaching and soundboard sessions for for companies on an ongoing basis so if you do want to talk to the and health team so Grace my co-founder she's a co-inventor on a technology currently in multiple markets she managed their clinical trials she's been involved in product development very hands-on experience and we also have access to proven executives from all sorts of different places, including pharma and, and global me- medical device companies. So if you do want to come and talk to us about the challenges you're facing or what next or COVID in a positive or negative context and how that's impacting your business, then reach out to us via andhealth.com.au for an office hour session. Perfect. Thank you, Bronwyn. I'll, I'll put your details in the show notes and some information and links for everyone to check out if they like as well. Good luck with all those initiatives in the future. I do hope you get some of that that leave at some point in your life between now and then and look forward to seeing you at one of those events soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.